Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Kay Keane. Kay is a practice manager and she's also a director and kind of co-founder of the Institute of General Practice Management. In this podcast, you'll get a bit of greater insight into the life of a practice manager. Kay also shares with us why she co-founded, along with three other practice managers, the Institute of General Practice Management, which is all about helping to professionalise and raise the profile and elevate the expansive and extensive role of general practice managers and primary care network managers. And we also talk about the use of social media in general practice. I don't want to sound cringe, but I really, really like Kay. I'm like a proper fan. She's so easy to talk to. She's really, really inspiring. And I hope that this is the first of many conversations I get to have with her. This is a nice, easy listen. If you are a practice manager, primary care network manager, or you are a GP and you've got an amazing practice manager, please share this podcast with them. And I will see you in the next episode. Hey, Kay, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to join you this morning. My pleasure. So our paths crossed. I mean, they kind of virtually crossed in, we're both in a Facebook group. And then I saw you in person at the EMIS NUG conference and you gave just such a fantastic presentation. I've started to use some of your stuff. I put it in our recent blog. So yeah, I was a bit like, you have to come on, you have to come on. Well, I was a bit fangirl of you as well, Tara, because <laughs> I do my morning walks. I have a bit of a ritual of doing a walk before I start my day just to kind of clear my head, think what I'm going to do. And you're one of my people that I listen to. So I was a bit kind of, oh, my God, Tara's oh. in my audience. How do I deal with it? <laughs> so no pressure. I think I did OK. No, it was really, really good. So would you be able to share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm a practice manager. I currently work at a really amazing practice called Urban Village Medical practice. We're city centre Manchester and as well as having a GMS contract for about, I don't know, 11 and a half, 12,000 patients, we're also commissioned to deliver homeless healthcare services across the city. So we look after between about 800 and 1200 patients who are experiencing homelessness. That's one of the reasons that I came to work here earlier on this year. 
that the inequalities work, the work around supporting people who have perhaps not had the same opportunities as me really made me want to change practices. And so that was a big move that I made at the beginning of the year. And I'm one of the directors of the Institute of General Practice Management. And that kind of came about just because there was four of us that were a little bit fed up that NHS England said that we weren't professionals and we couldn't get the new to partnership money and incentives. If you've met any of the four of us, so myself, Joe Wadey, Nicola Davis, Robin Clark, we're quite loud. And rather than just moan about it, we thought we'd do something about it. So we set up that body to represent practice managers and to professionalise the career. So within 18 months, two years of us setting up, there is now a registration process so you can be a registered professional working in and around primary care. It's quite a lot, isn't it? I know. But what goes into setting up an institute and why was the why is the word institute important in regards to the Institute of General Practice Management? I guess we just get on with stuff. Practice managers tend to do that. If there's a problem, we solve it. You know, if I go down the list of things that I've done this morning, it might overwhelm some other people, but you just kind of get on, you do it, you have a target, you get it done and don't really think about it. So to us, to set it up was just like, what do we have to do? Let's do it. And we had some great support from Professor James Kingsland. James helps us with our professional standards and we have a business manager and we just kind of did it. We just got on. It was really, really important that we brought that management community. And when I say management community, I mean like finance managers, assistant practice managers, operations managers. And we kind of know that 60% of anyone in a management role is looking to leave within the next five years. So we wanted to make it an attractive profession as well. Because any one of us will say, depending on what time of day you ask us, it's the best job in the world. And equally, we might say it's the absolute worst job in the world. But we want to encourage people to come on. We want to professionalise the career so that other people get the advantages of the things that we've done and we've seen and we've been able to change. How many people are now part of the Institute? So we've got 1,600 paid associate members and then we're putting people through the accreditation. And I think we're up to about 150 And that's quite a daunting prospect to go through the accreditation. It's a 10 domains and you have to provide evidence against all 10 of those domains. So there's things like finance and HR and all of the things that we do without thinking about are all part of that. We kind of hide our skills quite often within the whole of the NHS. So when I'm talking to people about, you know, how they go about filling in the forms and getting the accreditation, I ask them to imagine that they're filling in a form to get a bonus and tell that person who's going to look at it about all the amazing things that you do. And that kind of makes us sell ourselves a little bit more and say, you know, what you've been involved with, what projects you've led, what you do on a day to day basis. And actually the evidence comes flowing and flowing. And then we ask them to get their current employer to verify that what's in that document is true. And that is so powerful because when their partner reads that, it's like, oh, my God, you really do all this stuff. And it just adds that realisation of what actually goes on in the life of a practice manager. What do you think the misconceptions are of a practice manager? We've heard lots of them, actually, while we've been setting up the organisation. So receptionist that's just got a promotion 
that's my story. I started off as a receptionist. So yeah, there are some of us, you know, Nicola, exactly the same. She started off as a medical secretary. So there are some of us that have worked through organisations. I've been off and worked for NHS England and come back. That we unblock the toilets, that's also something that's said. We're the ones that do all the drudgery and the if something needs doing, if a light bulb needs changing, we change it, which in a lot of practices, that is also true. But also we're the people that lead the strategy. We're the people that say, this is a great idea. This is what we should be doing next. These are the things that we can change to make the biggest difference for our population. So it's a fabulous place to be if innovation is something that you're interested in. I don't know if the title always matters, but I think that in my view, to me, like a practice manager is like a CEO or like a chief operating officer. And I think some t- I think it depends where you sit, but I don't, in my personal view, the title practice manager doesn't reflect the job that you do. If that, but that's just my take. And there's lots of that in general practice. I mean, the word receptionist doesn't tell you what that person does. And there's lots of people that are now called business managers or managing director. Those kind of roles are coming in for practice management. But I guess I'm probably a bit old. I thought I could be like my first practice manager. And that's what drove me in some respects to come back into practice management after I'd been off and worked for NHS England. And gosh, that job is so different than I remember from 20 years ago, wishing I could be that person. So yeah, very different than I remember. I first came across you guys when you launched your campaign. If I die, it will be your fault. Yeah. Everyone remembers the hard hittingness of that. You know what? That cost us hardly anything to make because we went out to our community and said, this is what we want to do. Does anyone want to just film themselves saying those words or whatever words it was that they'd heard? And it was so powerful because it was everybody from every part of the NHS. It was receptionists that were on the South Coast, receptionists that were up in Newcastle, receptionists that were in the middle of Wales. They all heard that same thing. If I die, it will be your fault. And imagine going home and thinking about your day and that's the thing you've got to unpack. It's unfair. It's unfair on that level of workforce. And you know what? I've been pushed. I've been spat at. I've been called awful names and some that were quite ridiculous that I've laughed at people for calling them me. But I get paid a bit more than those receptionists. And I'm not saying it's right. But you know what? They're the ones that are trying to help. They're the ones that you really need to build the relationship with because they might not be able to get you an appointment, but they will be able to direct you to the right service for your needs. That isn't, as you know, isn't always a GP, but having a conversation and trusting relationship with that person who answers the phone is the best relationship you'll make in any GP practice. So one of the things that I loved about your presentation was you are a fellow lover of social media, as am I, and you use it in your work. So can you share how you use it in your practice and your practices? So I guess the journey with social media was we couldn't get a PPG at my last practice, so we couldn't get a patient participation group. And I went and sat in the waiting room to talk to the patients I do that quite a lot. I chat to people. You can probably tell I quite like talking. So I sat in the waiting room and I said, why wouldn't you join the PPG? What is it we could do differently? And they all kind of sat doing this. Didn't really want to talk to this mad woman. And I kind of thought, well, if they don't want to come to us, let's go to them. So that was the first Facebook group we set up. And that was for my last practice, Alvinley Family Practice. And it worked amazingly well. 
they've got about 3,000 followers for a 6,000 patient list. And it became more than a place for people to come and hear about healthcare. It became that community connection that's really, really important. I kind of look around places and think, what is the thing that brings everyone together? And it perhaps used to be a pub or, I don't know, a social club, a working men's club or the school or the church. We're perhaps not going to those things anymore. But the GP practice is that constant in our lives. So we kind of changed it a little bit and made it somewhere where we would share things that were health related that were going on in the community. So we'd share if there was a walking group or if there was an exercise class or any of those things, but also some of the stories of our patients. And during the pandemic, those stories of our patients just became golden. Some of the ones that I can really think about, a patient called Alan. I'm so fond of Alan. He has COPD. And for him to be on a live conversation with me and our COPD nurse and Alan to say, I wish I'd never picked up a cigarette. And us watching him speaking with his whole body breathing. There's probably a really technical term for that, but I don't know it. But, you know, when you can just <laughs> see somebody breathing with their whole body. That increased our smoking cessation inquiries more than anything else we could ever do. Because you might see Alan in the post office or near to the practice and he spoke, not in medical terms, but in the terms that people would understand. If you smoke now, stop. And if you haven't started, don't. Because by the time you're 70, whatever, this is what you'll be like. And it makes me a bit emotional thinking about it because they were real people telling real stories. So that then made me think about the power of experts by experience. So we did quite a lot of work around that, particularly joining the pandemic and having patients talking about their problems. But also once that was over, having events where people could come and talk about a particular topic and feel safe to do that. So we're expanding that a little bit more here at Urban Village. We've started doing Walk Talk Walks. I don't know if you've heard of that national programme of work. So we're doing Walk Talk Walks where we have a GP with us. So this is just so brilliant because it gets the GP out of their room. And I'm such an advocate for them getting out and getting some fresh air and looking after themselves. So we have an hour session where we walk for 20 minutes, we come back together for 20 minutes and then we walk again for 20 minutes. And we've done men's health events where people have come that never come to the doctor. They don't have to come for a smear or, you know, to come with their kids or whatever. So they come and they talk to us about erectile dysfunction or they talk to us about their worries about heart disease or diabetes. And we've had women's health events where they have come and chatted to us about contraception or how do I know if I'm menopausal? How many periods do I have to miss before they stop? And what happens if I've missed six and suddenly I get one? So those kind of conversations that are not, I don't want to say not worth, but probably we wouldn't bother a GP with. But because we're walking and we're chatting and one of us facilitates that conversation, so we make sure the group kind of splits up and we all have a conversation, in that 20 minutes that we get back together, we'll talk about those things we've discussed on the walk. So powerful. It's really amazing. What messages are you sending your patients to make them want to come? Spend an hour with a GP. <laughs> that kind of gets them, isn't it? I mean, how often do you get to spend an hour? An hour? So we've done it by specific topics. 
But we're just wondering what to do next. I mean, I've only been here six months and it's kind of going back to our PPG and having a very honest conversation with them. What is it that would make you come? What is it we should do next? Because they're key to us. They're a representative of our population. And it's a very different one here than I'm used to before. Our patients are generally much younger, generally working. So we've got to think of different ways to engage with those and different groups that are already in existence here that we could perhaps talk to and engage with. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. So when it comes to social media, what objections do you receive? Do people think, oh no, it won't work or people don't use Facebook or it's really time consuming? Like what are the sorts of things people say to you like, no, we can't do that here, we're different? The team haven't said any of that here. So the team are just like, yeah, let's get on with it. Let's talk to them. If it means that somebody isn't worrying about something, let's share some information about it. Let's do things differently. And it's really empowering to have a partnership team here that think like that. Their partners are amazing. And whatever I've said to them, shall we do this? Shall we do that? They're like, yeah, let's give it a go. So that's great. We do get comments and I read one last night. I think I told you when I did my presentation at the EMIS NUG about the swans. We do loads and loads of really good health related content. And then when I started here, the swans were sitting on a nest and we followed the story of the swans outside the practice on the canal over the last six months. And now we've got these signets that look like swans. We get more engagement about the swans than anything else, which is really disappointing because we spend (laughs) quite a lot of time doing the other things. But last night, somebody had posted, you ought to see patients rather than think about bloody swans. And I've left that comment there because I kind of think another patient might reply to that. I kind of think another patient might say, we really enjoy seeing the swans, so I don't need to respond. So I kind of give things a bit of time to develop. But you're always going to get people saying, why are you telling us about this? Why don't you get on with the day job? Why don't you do something different? But I think for every one of those, there's probably 100, 200 people that like it, maybe more. So at the time of recording, we're getting ready for, so you're gearing up for winter. So what does winter pressures mean to you? and your practice? Well, this morning, I've just been looking at our Christmas rotors and who's going to be in doing what. We want to give everybody a day off. We want to give everybody fair time. We're just thinking about flu clinics and how we make sure that everybody that comes in the building who's eligible is offered a flu vaccination. And while they're offered a flu vaccination, we're looking at anything else that they're due as well. 
we've got people who sadly have been off poorly, seasonal viruses and COVID seems to be on the rise as well. So every day with firefighting, where can we put this clinic? Where can we put that? Where can we put these patients? What's your COVID policy? For our staff? Yeah. So if somebody's tested positive, we're not having them in the building and they're off for five days. That's difficult because we really struggle with staff and we know that COVID is now becoming another winter illness that people are going to have. But our patients that we see face to face are really vulnerable. Our homeless population, just thinking about those people. I was driving to work yesterday morning and it was raining and pouring. I mean, it was like biblical weather yesterday in Manchester. And I just thought about those people that hadn't got anywhere to sleep that night and that they were going to come and see us that morning and their shoes would be soaking wet, their socks would be soaking wet, everything about them would be soaking wet. And we're that place that they feel safe and they're going to come and see us and they're at their most vulnerable. And our team have got to be on it. We've got to be the best we possibly can be. And if one of those people who is sleeping rough catches COVID, it's just disaster. It's absolute disaster for them. So it's really hard. It's hard managing that, just like it's hard managing any winter illness. You mentioned it's really important for your team to be on it. How do you create an environment so they can be on it when it's it's so busy? I think I'm really fortunate here that the partners are in the team. So there is no hierarchy, really. I mean, they make the decisions, but they're always thinking about the whole team. They're probably more of an open door than I've ever seen before. They're grabbing a drink with them. They're catching up with them. They know about their families, their friends. Some of the staff here have worked together for over 20 years. It is a really strong team. My way of management is I always do a little bit of a floor walk. So each morning we have a meeting at 10 to 8. That's been long standing here. Everybody attends that's in in the morning and we talk about the day. We talk about what they're worrying about. Probably also talk about what they did last night as well. So there's that that social element as well. And then mid-morning, mid-afternoon, I make sure for my benefit and for everyone else's, I get up and I walk around this building. And I make sure that whoever is here, I'll bob my head through the door. I'll sit and talk to them about what they're doing. I'll ask them if there's anything I can do to help. And that might be something really tiny that I can fix quickly and it'll make their life so much better. Or even just having five minutes chatting to me about what else is going on in their life makes them feel better about the day. It's important to give everybody that time. So that's what I do twice a day. And of course, people are constantly coming in with issues and problems that as a practice manager, that's what we expect. That's what we do. So moving forward, when you're thinking about um, kind of the ambitions for the Institute of General Practice Management, what do you what are you guys working towards? Gosh, we have so many ideas. We have loads of ideas, we have loads of ambition, but we're four full-time practice managers. And that's one of the things that's not holding us back, but it brings that realisation to us that we want to go at a steady pace to bring the profession with us. Two weeks ago, we set up some really simple stuff. Ten WhatsApp groups we set up two weeks ago. Practice managers were saying kind of on our closed Facebook group, we want something, we want a way of talking to other people that are in the same position as us. Those groups are amazing, absolute golden nuggets of information shared and questions asked and support, amazing support. 
I've learned loads already. I can get by with IT, but I'm not thinking of the next thing. I'm not really forward thinking with my own IT. Somebody that I don't know, he's called Ben. He's a practice manager. He's amazing at IT. He's taught me how to set up some rules on my email inbox. It's just like life-changing stuff that I would never have even thought that I could do. He's sent all of us a guide of how to do it, really step by step. He's saved me loads of time. So we set those up. We're at lots of conferences. We've got a standard best practice. I've been chairing lots of conferences and talking at conferences and just trying to increase our membership, being part of something. I kind of think of it like a social movement. The managers getting together for the first time, the power in our voices now that means that the GPC might ring us up and say, what do you think about this? We're negotiating this. How does that sit with managers? What is it that is on your radar at the moment? So to have them talking to us, to have NHS England inviting us to committees where they're talking about quaff and the future of those kind of things. We need the numbers of practice managers to join us. So we're always striving to move forward with that number of, we've got about 1,600 now. We think there's about 6,000 practices. So if we could get to kind of halfway, that's a really big ambition of ours. And then that professional register. So people who have been through the accreditation process so that they can have those letters MIGPM after their name. To see that on somebody's email signature is just incredible and see that list of people growing and using the kind of 10 domains when practices are thinking about employing new practice managers what is it we need to put in the job description oh I know let's go and look at that accreditation process let's see if the next person we can appoint we can make sure goes through this process so some of that future proofing But we're also talking to apprenticeship providers as well and seeing if we can set up a program that covers those 10 domains so that if we get new practice managers or aspiring managers in practice, that they can go through an apprenticeship, level five, level six, and cover off those 10 things so that at the end of that, when they've been within practice for two years, they've got enough evidence to take forward to do MIGPM. So loads of stuff. And I've got practice to run. (laughs) Okay, thank you so much. If people want to find out more, where's the best place to catch you? So email me. I'm really happy if people email me, kay.keen at nhs.net. I'll make sure you've got all the IGPM links in the show notes as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. No problem. Lovely to talk to you. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and i will see you in the next episode.